Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Wild Tales podcast. I'm Jason Fox, and this series is all about adventure, resilience, and inspirational humans. The podcast is presented by the Book of Man and in partnership with Talisker, a single malt whiskey made by the sea. Our guest today is Tracy Edwards, MBE, a British sailor with an incredible story. She inspired a generation of women when she skipped the first all-female crew in the Whitbread Round the World Yacht Race, as seen in last year's documentary film, Maiden. She now runs the Maiden Factor, which has used the original vessel from 1989 to tour the globe to raise awareness for women's rights in developing countries. Tracy is a truly remarkable and determined individual. In the episode, we answer some questions that you've asked me on Instagram. I'm going to be sending a bottle of Talisker to the top question. In addition, Malts.com are offering a 10% off promo code, which is Talisker15DE. That's all in uppercase. Redeemable at checkout on www.malts.com until the 1st of October 2020. Discount may only be used once for individual Talisker Distillers Edition products for sale at £100 or less. No minimum spend, but a delivery charge may apply. Not to be used in conjunction with any other offer and gift card purchases are excluded. 18 plus and subject to malts.com terms of sale. Anyway, here we go and I hope you enjoy it. Hi everyone, uh, welcome again to another podcast, uh, Wild Tales. Um, yeah, again, we're doing it remotely because of the crisis reading, except this time it's a little bit more remotely because I'm in Sydney, Australia. And uh, my next guest, the legend that is Tracy Edwards, is in Putney, if I'm right. <laughs> so, hi, Tracy, how's it going? Yeah, it's okay. It's um, I'm not entirely sure what the answer is to that question at the moment, but uh, some days are good, some days not so great, but same as everyone else, I guess. Yeah, how's, how has lockdown been for you? I know we're sort of like, we're, we're at the tail end of well, we're at the tail end of something, hopefully. But who knows what's around the corner? But yeah, how's it been anyway? The last few months. Yeah, it was um, a bit of a shame, really, because we spent the whole of last year with Maiden doing her world tour, kind of setting 2020 up to be <laughs> a huge year for us. And uh, so in March, we were literally just about to head off from uh, the Caribbean. Well, not we, my my amazing team. Um, in Maiden, we're about to head off to the east coast of the States and we were supposed to spend the whole summer there, you know, big fundraisers and uh, all the stuff we were doing with schools and communities. And of course, the day before they left, I had to say, no, nope, you're going to have to get yourselves home and uh, we had to get Maiden back to the UK. So for us, it's um, it's been hard changing our mindset. You know, we've had to change from full on excitement to, okay, we have to deal with this and completely reschedule everything. But again, the same as everyone else. Yeah, exactly. I think the only, I think that's one of the things you can take from it is like a lot of the time when things go wrong, you're like, oh, damn, you know, 
I mean, this on my own. This time, it's the same for everyone. Which is, there's a bit of comfort that comes from that, isn't there? I yeah. suppose. Yeah, you know, we are that... all in the all in the same boat. Ha ha, pardon the pun. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so in, I don't want to jump the gun because obviously we're going to get to. I like to move through things chronologically. Uh, we're going to get to, you know, where you were before lockdown and what that was all about. But um, I'm interested in always starting at the beginning. You know, can you? I'd love to, love you to explain a bit about your childhood and how you sort of became this this legend or how where where did the interest come from in being on the water well there was absolutely zero interest at all i have to say from me uh, my dad who was a sailor desperately tried to get me into sailing and when i was about eight years old he took me in this tiny what i thought was a tiny uh, sailing yacht from um from the mainland to the isle of wight i was horribly seasick and vowed to live on the isle of wight for the rest of my life so i would never have to get back in another boat again um but, you know, um, I, my dad died when I was 10, which uh, changed my life forever, really. My mum remarried, uh, a not, uh, not a very nice person. Um, but one actually good thing that he did was he moved us down to Wales. So I grew up in um, a quite, uh, at the end of the Gower Peninsula, which is quite wild and uh, remote. Nice. And yeah, so I grew up on a farm with horses and a beach and hillsides. And for a kid, it was idyllic. Um, but my father, my stepfather and I had a quite a volatile and physical relationship um, and I was being bullied at school. So I went from a really, um, I'd say, quite cute uh, girl to um, a nightmare from hell. Um, my <laughs> poor mother. Oh, my God. So, um, yeah, I, I didn't tell her what was going on. I became aggressive and angry and violent. So, um, staying out all night, climbing out of my bedroom window. I stole a car. I was arrested. I mean, I just went from this wonderful middle-class child to this total nightmare. And in the end, I was expelled from school when I was 15. Um, I mean, I had, I had to say my headmaster, his patience up until then had been quite extraordinary. Um, and I, you know, had no exams, no qualifications. Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And it was my mum who suggested that I go backpacking to Greece. Uh, where we had a friend who owned a piano bar in Piraeus, you know, the ports, and so off I went at the age of 16. And I look at my daughter at the age of 16 when she was, and I just thought, there's, there's no way I would let her go. But she was right. I needed to get away from where I was and go and find who I was. And uh, my mum was an extraordinary woman and uh, took a lot of courage yeah. to do that. Ended up working in a bar in Greece, as you do. A guy came in one night the bar and said would you like to work on my boat I was 17 then and I just went uh, yeah okay and so off I went on this charter yacht as a stewardess and within four days I thought this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life not the stewardessing I have to say that was horrendous uh, but the sailing <laughs> for me was um I found what I was supposed to do yeah I mean going back there obviously you said looking at your daughter when she was 16 you couldn't think about packing her off on a sort of like a holiday but I think when you look at your daughter when she's 16 was she as badly behaved as you were no, <laughs> no thank goodness no my daughter took after my mother thank god and I took after my grandmother so my daughter's got a really tough time with hers coming up uh, when she has one so yeah it skips a generation luckily for me yeah <laughs> okay cool so um 
what was is the stewardessing that you originally did in the beginning what sort of boat were you on to begin with I was actually on a motor yacht to start off with, which of course is a swear word in, in the sailing world. Um, but it was a great start for me because more than more than the ocean, which I had let, I, I came to appreciate later, and more than the lifestyle, which came later, for me it was the first time I had ever belonged to a group of people. It was the first time I'd ever felt I wasn't on the outside looking in. I was actually on the inside of something amazing, and all of these people. We all kind of ended up there, you know, and we were all this sort of ragtag bunch of, um, you know, sort of gypsies and nomads and all looking for something, mostly running away from something, if I'm honest. But, you know, we were this just this strange, all of the boats that I've ever been on, we've been this sort of bizarre family unit, which of course is what I didn't have at home. And and these people accepted me, you know, warts and all. And, and so for me, that was the that was the thing that drew me to it. Um, the work is hard, you know, you're working on a charter yacht, it's back-to-back -back chartering with some very wealthy, very demanding, often people uh, who like things done a certain way, but you're learning all the time. And, and, you know, on every boat I've ever had, I've had great mentors. Every one of my skippers and my cooks were always saying to me, you know, you can do more than this. Why don't you try, you know, push yourself? And, you know, so my second transatlantic, the skipper said to me, can you navigate? And I went, of course I can't navigate. I was you know, expelled before long division, for God's sake. Yeah. So he said to me, well, what happens if I fall over the side? And I said, well, I, there's two other guys on the boat. He said, they can't navigate. I said, well, I'll use the, the electronic thingy. You know, He said, well, what, the, what did the batteries go? I'm like, oh, for goodness sake. He said, why are you being a bystander in your own life? He said, you're supposed to be playing the starring role. I'm like, God, it's a bit profound for two days into the Atlantic. But oh, I like it. Yeah, I don't, but it was one of the best pieces of advice I've ever been given because I was coasting. You know, I was having fun and it's all great. I mean, I was coasting. And uh, he taught me to navigate in two days. And if someone had told, you, told me that someone could teach me not to see numbers as hieroglyphics, I would have never believed them. But once I'd learned to navigate, for me, then that was it. I, I knew this was the job I wanted to do. And um, not just the sailing, but the navigation. For me, that, that magic, that wonder of finding out wherever you are in the world with a sextant, a book of tables and a, and a, and a pencil. <laughs> it's, it's weird that, do you know what? I don't mean to interrupt this story, everyone, no. but I'm, re I'm actually, because I'm sat in quarantine, going out of my mind, I'm reading a book at the moment called Wayfinding, and it's about the human, human's relationship with losing and finding their way. It's unbelievable. It's by a bloke called Michael Bond, I think. It's really okay. good to read. And it's about from the dawn of time how people have always how it can actually not knowing where you are can have a massive impact on your your mental headspace do you know what i mean and you see people when they get lost they go into an absolute flat spin and and you know in my and my my sort of relationship with being at, at sea is a, a lot less than yours but i have been in those situations where you're sometimes wondering where you are and you've got to try and work it out quickly and 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 to just to keep yourself in a, in a good good place do you know what i mean i think you're right um, i mean that, that is a very human condition needing to center yourself um before you can move forwards yeah definitely but um who is that who is that skipper then do you remember his can you remember his him? name was julian gildersleeve and the boat was uh, white quailer it was a 46 foot swan and it changed my life forever i mean it was such a profound moment in my life um 
And it really was the first time I thought I wasn't an idiot because when I did maths at school, you know, I was an idiot and I couldn't do anything. Sit at the back of the class and shut up and stop being disruptive. Um, yeah. You know, if my teacher had said to me, if you learn maths, you can be a pirate, I would have gone, okay, I'll learn maths, you know? So it, it was just having that, I need a reason, you know, to, to do stuff. Yeah, so then obviously that being the, the second transatlantic trip was obviously an extremely defining moment in your life. When did the sort of, obviously you're now, as far as I can read into this now, the fact, the, the point that you're part of a small team that has all has a common goal, you know, it's getting from A to B essentially most of the time. And that's in that, in that world. But when did the racing side of things come into play? Well, when you, so you're in this weird traveling circus and you've got the seasons, you know, you've got the Med, the Indian Ocean, the Caribbean. So you follow the seasons on different boats and you chop and you change. And um, I began to realize that all of these other people on these other boats, you know, sort of they would have this other thing, you know, sort of a, a, something they would do at the weekend. And most of the time it was racing. And uh, again, I was, I'm, I'm so lucky with the boats that I've been on and, uh, you know, sort of the pro progression things and so one weekend in Antigua I found myself uh, racing on a weekend race and just thought god this is great and yeah. I discovered I was competitive because up until then I've been you know just completely laid well not completely laid back but no goals no no vision no future you know and so racing for me made me feel oh my goodness there's a purpose to this and I want to win and uh, that was surprising um, and again very lucky I was on great boats I learned you know it's a weird so sailing is kind of two sections if you like there's the charter world which is where you don't notice the sexism because the men are the skippers the women are the cooks the girls are the stewardesses and the boys are the deckhands it's just how it is like a family but when you get into racing that's when you start to realize oh there's only some things I'm allowed to do in this scenario so I'm not allowed to get on the wheel I'm not allowed to do that and so that for me was the first indication that here was something I really enjoyed, but I couldn't kind of go all the way with it. And um, not that I necessarily wanted to, but it was, uh, it just flagged it up for me. And then it was again, actually Julian, um, who said to me, you know, you, you seem to love this racing. I've done the Whitbread Around the World race. Why don't you, why don't you sort of have a look at doing that? It's like, oh, what's that? They gave me this book called Cape Horn's Port, which was again to change my life. And I just read from cover to cover and went, I have to do this. And two weeks later, a boat sailed into the harbour that was doing the Whitbread. It was just like, you know, sort of dropped into my lap. Um, I got on this boat to do the first leg of the Whitbread. This was the 8586 Whitbread, but I, I didn't like it. Skipper scared me and I didn't feel that it was, I didn't feel safe. And that was the first yeah. time I felt safe at sea. So in Cape Town, um, I got off and uh, wondered what to do next. And then the guys on Atlantic Privateer, which was the, the most badly behaved boat in the entire race. I mean, they were, they were called the Pirates for a reason. Um, I like the sound of them already. This is awesome. Well, they were just mad. Um, I've been friends with them for ages, but it's very different being friends with people on land, being on a boat with them, as you, yeah, as yeah. you well know. So they said, look, we've lost our cook, you know, uh, what do you think? And um, the skipper didn't want me, he didn't want me on the boat. The owner said, Let, yeah, let's have you on the boat. Let's, let's see what happens, you know. So I became the first woman to get on an ocean racing maxi in the Whitbread. So the first leg was horrendous. I mean, absolutely horrendous. They threatened to throw me over the side. Um, the first 
the first thing they did was say, right, so what we do on each leg is we see how long we can all go without washing and the winner gets a crate of beer. And I'm like, oh, what have I, what have I let myself in for? I did actually win though. So I, I felt I had to, <laughs> uh, it was a point I had to prove. But then when we got to court, one of the guys lasted another two days, you know, so you're like, oh no. So it was a baptism of fire, but I learned, you know, these guys, they, they may have been rough and tough and everything else, but I mean, they'll hate me for saying this, but all of them had a soft side and they all taught me something. And if I wanted to, how does that work? They'd sit and, they'd sit and teach me. And so we won that leg. So I then became a lucky charm to have on the boat. Getting a date was a nightmare because I had 17 older brothers. So that was just awful. Um, mm -hmm. But I got to the end of this race and I just thought, well, that is the world's best kept secret because before the race, there were three women out of 260 crew, three women out of 260 um, at 35 years ago. And before the race, everyone had been saying to me, oh, it's really hard. It's awful. You won't last. And at the end, I thought, it's not that hard. This is, you know, this is like the ultimate man shed at the bottom of the garden. Don't go there. So <laughs> I thought I want to do the race again, but I want to do it as a navigator, not as a cook. You know, I'm a better navigator than I am a cook. And my daughter will definitely agree with that. Um, and then I had this probably the second most profound thought I had in my life, which was no man will ever let me on a boat as a navigator ever. So my mum said, well, how do you change that then? You know, you don't like the world, the way the world looks, change it. And I thought, but how, how do I change this? And I thought, well, I'd have to have my own team. I have to have my own boat and it should be a team of women so that we can prove that women can race around the world. And then I can be the navigator. So it was quite a selfish reason that I set Maiden up. It didn't start out being, well, you know, fighting for women's rights. It was, <laughs> I want to be a navigator. And uh, so that, that's how Maiden, uh, into being with me wanting to do something I was told I couldn't do. You say it's selfish, but ultimately everyone wants to do something. And in the in your case, you know, especially back then, being a being a female who wanted to navigate, you had to be selfish, to, which in turn helped generations of women after you. So yeah, I get what you're saying, but in the same breath, I'd suggest that you're not selfish, and it's been a good thing. But anyway, we're not at the end of the story, so. How that so that was the idea and the concept of, of was it the we're leading up to 1989, aren't we? Yeah, the 1989-90 Whitbread, which was the best of all the Whitbreads in my humble opinion. <laughs> so how how did it all become a reality? You know, from that the concept of right, I want to be a navigator, but and I need to find a load of women that want to come with me. Yeah. <laughs> and well, a boat. How, yeah, how was this? <laughs> the yeah. most important part is well, well they all are everything's important but obviously a boat is quite essential in a, in it a, round is a bit world. essential yeah um well i met this guy called howard gibbons who is a yachting journalist who said well i'll give you a hand and we sat in the pub and uh, literally back of a beer mat we worked out you know budget what do we need you know boat crew and all this other thing i mean we it, it staggers me how little we knew about what we were doing but that was probably a good thing what what did happen though was I realised I'd learned much more on the 85A6 Whitbread than I realised. I knew I'd learned how to manage a yacht. I'd learned how to provision. I'd learned you know, all of these different things, which just suddenly came into play. And so the two of us literally uh, put the project together. We realised we needed a couple of million pounds. I mean, we were at that point going to design and build a brand new yacht, like everyone else. But what I had not reckoned with was the opposition 
<laughs> what we wanted to do. I thought yeah. a couple of people would say, oh, girls can't do that. And we'd go, yes, they can. And we'd just get on with it. But the, the opposition was anger and and the and so vociferous you know it was um you know i i literally had a guy walk up to me in the pub one night jab his finger almost into my face and say you're going to die I'm like um okay but that's that's kind of my business it, you know it's, it doesn't affect you in any way at all so it was but again you know as as these things often turn out this 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 wave of, of opposition ended up really galvanizing me and that's when i thought oh i'm not just doing this for me i'm doing this for women everywhere this is this is not acceptable so you know that's really uh, that really kind of made me do it i you know i often wonder if people had said oh that's a good idea would i have just gone oh, that's a bit boring i'll go and do something else so we fought every step of the way every day we fought and we are what were the organizers of the event like towards it, the idea the, Interestingly, actually, the event was run by the Royal Naval Sailing Association and, uh, God, those are the days, the amateur days of sailing. And Admiral yeah. Charles Williams, Admiral Sir Charles Williams, um, who was this terribly proper um, you know, admiral in the Royal Navy, I thought he would be our biggest problem. Not a bit of it. Um, there were people in the race that went to him and said, we don't think we want an all-female crew in the race. You know, they're going to be a liability. We're always going to be rescuing them. God, how insulting. <laughs> Um, and, yeah, and it was Admiral Charles Williams who said, oh, "I think um, I think they're going to do it, and I think this is a jolly good idea." So he let us enter the race, which you know he could have prevented us from doing. It was more from, and then I, I have to say, the guys within the actual fleet then started coming around. And I mean, when we had to buy a second-hand boat uh, called Prestige, which had already been around twice before. Uh, we couldn't afford a new boat. No one would give us sponsorship. No one would help us. No one would give us money. So we bought this second-hand boat. I remortgaged my house. Um, we, we found this ship in Cape Town where we bought the boat. And we said, could you put our boat on the top of your containers and get her to the UK? And God, you couldn't do that now. So we got the boat to the UK. And then we put her in a boatyard. And we did the work. We had no money. So we literally walked into the boatyard with sledgehammers. Uh, to take the boat apart, to redesign her, to put her back together again. And that was the point where people went, oh, I think they're quite serious about this. And the guys in the yard were brilliant. You know, someone gave us an engine, uh, we've got a generator from another boat. Someone said, oh, we've got some spare rigging. Do you want that? Yep, I'll have that. You know, I mean, we, we got some secondhand paint from, paint from the naval dockyard um, to paint her. Whereabouts, whereabouts was the boat kept, sorry? in Hamble, so on the south coast of, of, uh, of the UK. And while all this was going on, we were raising money, we were, women were arriving at, literally at my front door going, I want to sail around the world. And teams starting to come together. We started out with a nucleus of women who were to last the whole two years of, of the project. And again, for me, that was really important because one of the last things got flung at us was women don't get on. And I was like, where does that come from? You know, it, it comes from men who don't want women to get on. So um, all of us staying together as a team was really important. And Peter Blake um, had the only other team who stayed together as long. And he came first and, and we came second. So, you know, it was a fight to the, to the start line. But again, you know, something which was a disadvantage ended up being an advantage because by the time we got to the start line, we were battle hardened. We had had to fight every inch of the way to get to that start line from then on we knew what we were doing we knew we could do the next bit 
all of the other guys, you know, they, they jump on their big shiny boats, you know, and, and off they go. And, and so I always felt that we had something that they, through no fault of their own, didn't have. And, um, and then, of course, the final piece of the jigsaw puzzle was when King Hussein um, of Jordan came in as a sponsor and Royal Jordanian Airlines ended up being our sponsor, which is why she's the beautiful grey colour, because that's the colour of their planes. How did that come about? That I mean, I, that relationship and I mean, what was it? Did he just find out about the story and felt it was inspiring? And no, no, I met him when I was 21 as I was a stewardess on a charter boat that he chartered in Newport, Rhode Island, and we became friends. And King Hussein, one of the most amazing human beings that has ever walked this earth, and we sorely miss him right now, I have to say. Um, he was a collector of people and he collects people from all over the world, from different classes, colours, creeds, ethnicity, religions. Um, and I was doing the washing up and I turned around and there's King Hussein standing there with a tea towel. And I just went, I don't think you can do that. He said, I can do anything I like. I'm king. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, so he was drying up. I'm washing up. He said, I'm so fascinated with this life that you have. He said, you're like a, you're like a Bedouin. Of course, I didn't know what a huge compliment that was at the time. Um, and um, we started talking about taking radios apart. And um, as I was probably one of the saddest people I knew at that point, I love taking things apart and putting them back together again. We loved communication. We both loved navigation. He's a pilot. He's a, he was a ham radio operator. So we just had this instant connection and we stayed in touch. And then he followed the 85, 86 Whitbread and we would call him from the boat, much to the amusement of the guys who thought this was just brilliant um and when when we got to the end and i decided to do maiden the first person i told was mum and then i flew over to jordan to stay with king Hussein's family and he was the second person i told and he, him and my mum really were the people that said to me you can do this if you put your mind to this you can absolutely achieve this and he was always there in the background i call him up and I mean I can't imagine what phone calls I interrupted but I would call him up and say I'm a bit worried I'm a bit nervous or I can't get to this point and, and he would advise me and when it got to two months before the start of the race and we still didn't have a sponsor he just said oh, this is ridiculous you know Royal Jordanian Airlines will be your sponsor and it, it did raise a few eyebrows I and mean, everyone was like Arab airline bunch of girls yeah no we don't get it but of course for him it was a natural because he believes in, <clears throat> believed in gender equality, religious equality, equality of color, religion, you know, everything. He had this vision of a, of a peaceful world where we all got on and, and, you know, he worked very hard to try and make that happen. So we sailed around the world with a message of peace and equality, which was 30 years ago, the first time anyone had ever done that. That's unbelievable. I, I love the link with the Jordanians and especially the king, because obviously they're, it's a remarkable country, to be fair. Yeah. Anyway, if anyone doesn't know much about Jordan, have a look at it, because if you look at where they are and who surrounds them, they've managed to keep pretty, pretty sane through a lot of things, for a lot of bad things as well. But just so going back to the race, before we get into the nitty gritty of it, because I know that there's plenty of stories and thing of, you know, and we all want to hear about stuff where it got a bit hairy but can you just and then the, the potential for this answer to be very long is easy it's there but what is where does it start and what is the route briefly okay so 
it's not dissimilar actually to the route behind me, uh, which is what Maiden's just done now. But so the first leg was from the UK. Now this was when the 8990 race was sanctions were now in place for South Africa because of apartheid. So that couldn't be a stopover. So the first leg was from the UK down to Uruguay on the uh, South, uh, South American coast. That was about 5,000 miles and took about four weeks. The next leg, the second leg, which is the real killer, was the longest leg the Whitbread had ever had because we couldn't stop in South Africa. So that was uh, 7,800 miles long, which is six, you know, five, six, seven weeks at sea. And that goes right into the Southern Ocean. And these were in the days where there were no rules about going, you can't go too far south because of the iceberg. So these are in the rules where it's just like, fill your boots, go wherever you want to go, which was great for a navigator uh, before the days of health and safety. Um, and so that finishes in Australia. And then you've got a short hop, 3,400 miles from Australia to New Zealand, uh, which is a tactical leg. And then back into the Southern Ocean, back to Uruguay, uh, and then up the coast, South America, North America to Fort Lauderdale in uh, America, and then uh, a transatlantic back to the UK. So it's nine months, it's 33,000 miles, and you're at sea, well, we were at sea for a total of 167 days out of the nine months. Unbelievable. Well, do you, um, how long are the stop-offs? Do you know when you stop off and you obviously you need to sort of a little bit of rest and recuperation and resupply. How long is there a set time? Do you have to sort of as soon as you're in, you then the clock starts before you then head off again? Yeah. So varying lengths. If you've just done a short leg, the stopover is quite short because you don't need to do so much. Uh, having said that, the stopover in New Zealand was a month, which is way too long. Um, but it's to give you a chance, you know, halfway around. So any repairs you've got to do with the team, the crew, the boat, whatever you can do there. But the boats were much faster than the race committee, I think, had realised. So we were getting to, to the stopovers a lot quicker. And, and, a month, and this is the thing, I mean, this is why I love non-stop around the world sailing so much, because the stopovers in the end become quite disruptive. And yeah. you get into it, and I guess you understand exactly what I'm saying here so you get into your stride you forget yeah. the outside world you're completely focused you know you, you've got a single sideband radio said radio as your only link with the outside world in the days before you know all these comms um, and it's just you it's you and the team and the ocean and it's the most pure form of living if you like I mean it's just it's an extraordinary experience and of course you get into Stop it, you get in stop over. I mean, you're happy with the first night, you know, you go to the pub, you eat normal food instead of freeze dried, and you know, you like that. And then a week later, you're, you know, and it, you tend to get as well. This is interesting. Um, when so all the, all the other crews are males and they've all got their wives and girlfriends arriving, we're all female, we've got our husbands and boyfriends, so actually, none of us are married, all boyfriends arriving. And what we found was the girls would be assimilated into the team, the male team. And what was happening was us, with us was our boyfriends were trying to peel us off <laughs> like sheepdogs, peel us off from the herd um, and, you know, sort of take us off on our own. We're like, no, we're a team. We live together. We sleep together. We eat together. We need to be like this. And that was quite weird, but, you know, something we had to get through. Um, so the stopovers can be a distraction. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you, you have to, well, you have to have them in this race. Yeah, I totally, I totally get that. It's like when you sort of when you're on those long legs, whatever it is that you're doing, you sort of do always look forward to that, that, that designate. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's stopover or, or you know, that, 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 that moment of rest and recuperation and a change of scenery. And then actually, they become an embuggerance and they, 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 you oh, lose momentum, you lose... You're in a bubble, then you're out of the bubble, and then you're like, yeah. you've got to reinsert, and you're like, oh, for God's sakes. But yeah, I know, I totally get it. But sticking with the race, then, um, I mean, yeah, I, we haven't got that much, we haven't got enough time to go through a lot of it. But can you talk about some of the highs and lows, um, particular legs or particular pieces of legs that, that really were a high, you know, there was much elation, but also ones that have included some terrifying moments because obviously you're at one with the sea and I know only too well mm-hmm. that that thing the ocean can bite you in the ass oh yeah um, and she's always right there ready to do that so the <laughs> first leg uh, was obviously a trial for us you know journalists were taking bets as to how far we'd get before we sank or died um yeah there was um, there was a book on that and um, but our project manager actually had quite a lot of money in it for us, and so we won. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we entered the first leg in third place. Now we were gutted, and this was the thing: we were a professional racing team in our heads, but in no one else's heads. We were a bit of a novelty, you know, side side check. So we yeah. were third, gutted. Everyone else was like, "Oh, you're alive!" Oh, this is amazing. You, you managed to sail across the ocean. <laughs> so we had this really weird, you know, it's a situation where we're gutted and everyone else is delighted. So we were kind of pretended we were delighted as well. The second leg for us was the big one. We knew we could win this leg. Maiden's a heavy boat. We knew we were going to be extreme. And uh, we went the furthest south of any boat in that race. And I made a very conscious decision. We were going to take big risks. I you know, I said to the crew, I think we can do this. Uh, I want to take big risks. And everyone's like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Um, when we saw our first iceberg about a couple of miles away without seeing it on the radar, we might have slightly changed our minds at that point. But we're like, no, no, we'll be fine. Um, <laughs> so that leg was, I mean, horrendous. But the sailing's amazing. The adrenaline is, um, you know, as you very well know, it's hard to live on adrenaline all the time. You know, you, you have to come down off that. And, and in a, in a five-week leg of total heightened awareness, it's quite hard so that you get exhausted quite quickly. It's very draining. Um, you get very few days, which are just a sort of a normal day sailing. And someone did actually die on this leg, um, which, 
you know, that that reminds you, you you know, romping through the Southern Ocean, taking all these risks and, you know, racing. And then a, a guy went over the side on another boat. And that that's when you think, OK, we're mortal and let's just remember where we are. Uh, so but when we got to the end of the of the second leg, we, we won that leg. So for me, that was one of the best moments of my entire life because the shock value was just off the scale. I mean, it wasn't for us. We were like. Yeah, we've done here what we set out to do but there were literally mouths dropping open i think the royal yacht, royal yacht squadron nearly fell down um you know, so it was this just mammoth change in people's minds i mean not everyone's minds you know most a lot of people are like oh it's just luck beginner's luck um but bob fisher who had written before we started the race bob fisher had written and guardian journalist they're yeah. just they're just a tin full of tarts um, when we won, <laughs> yeah, the journalist from the Guardian in the Holy, Guardian, thirty years shit. ago. I know, but when we so we won the leg into Australia, then we won the short leg into New Zealand, which proved we could do a long heavy leg and we could do a short tactical leg, and we won not just by but very convincingly. We were over a day ahead at the halfway point, and so Bob Fisher wrote in Yachts and Yachting this time, not just a tin full of tarts a tin full of smart, fast tarts. <laughs> so we were like, I mean, we were delighted until someone pointed out, you know, the word tarts is still in that sentence. And we're like, small steps, small steps. <laughs> so um, the rest of the race for us was uh, not as good, unfortunately. We went back into the Southern Ocean and there just wasn't the, the heavy airs that, that we wanted. Um, so we were lagging a little bit coming up to Cape Horn. I made a really annoying navigational mistake coming up to Cape Horn because it's in not a great position. Uh, but when we, we went around Cape Horn, fine. But then when we started coming up to the coast of South America, we hit a low pressure like I've, none of us have ever known. And we went head into a storm. Um, we started to take on water. We couldn't tell where it was coming from. Uh, it was serious. Uh, yeah. We sent out, uh, not a May Day, but uh, we scrambled um, the Falkland Islands who sent out a Hercules just to Kind of get our where we were make sure we we're okay so they were standing by for a May Day. and for me and it's interesting actually because people who i don't know maybe haven't been through so anything like that at all are like oh my god well you must have been frozen with fear and you're like, no actually that comes after as you know again when you are in this situation you just nothing else matters except survival and your team so yeah. all i could think about was how do we get through this um and it didn't it didn't occur to me to be frightened. I didn't almost didn't have time to be worried or frightened. I mean, I was worried. Um, and I lied through my teeth, if I'm honest. First time I've ever lied to my team. I said, this is, this is fine. Don't worry. Yep, we're going to sort this. And in my head, I'm thinking, I don't know if we are going to sort this. Of course, there's no one there to, to you. You've got to do it. There's no one, there's no repair people out there to help you. So we were, did not want to go into the Falklands if we could possibly help it. And in the end, we, we kind of sussed out that if we sailed at a certain angle that we don't, weren't taking in as much water, the bilge pumps broke. Uh, and you know that saying, there is no bilge pump like a bucket in the hands of a frightened sailor. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> Those buckets, I was in the nav station, the buckets were whizzing first, you know. Um, so we, we got through that. Um, I mean, I'm joking about it now, but I certainly wasn't at the time. And you, then you know, then about a day later, the, the sort of the nervous <laughs> laughs come in and you're like, that was um that was close. Uh, 
but the moment's gone, you've got through it. Um, when we got into Fort Lauderdale, um, we did the swimsuit thing, <laughs> which everyone remembers. So um, we felt that we'd earned our right to wear whatever the whatever the hell we wanted to wear when we sailed into port. And we were very always very clear with this project. We're not we're not blokes. We don't want to be blokes. We don't want to be male clones. We're girls, and we like being girls, and we like looking pretty. So when we sailed into Fort Lauderdale in swimsuits, that caused, of course, the, the biggest roar of the entire race, I think. Um, and then the final leg back to the UK, where we didn't manage to, we, we slipped into second place. We didn't manage to get first place back. Um, but of course, when we sailed into Southampton on the 28th of May, 1990, Bank Holiday Monday, we just sailed into this flotilla of boats coming out to see us in the Solent. I mean, it was, I've never seen anything like it. I'll never see anything like it again, 600 boats, Say really close to us, throwing flowers, beer, <laughs> um, you know, and just just incredible. And I think that was the moment we thought, oh, I think we might have done something here. You know, maybe we we've changed people's minds, and and maybe the, you know we've done something good here. And then we came into Ocean Village, and there were fifty thousand people all chanting, "Made." I mean, it was it was just an amazing, amazing day. I have to say, though, that it's really not until 30 years later when we saw the film that was made very recently that we yeah. really yeah. realised what we'd achieved. Um, it's taken us that length of time for the whole sort of thing to sink in. That's mad, isn't it? 30 years for something to sink in. And like, I mean, that's uh, I sort of got a bit emotional then at the end. I <laughs> yeah, no, that was really... I mean, it is an amazing thing, you know, that whole the whole process. When you think, look back on it and what you, you know, the beginning idea you know the the idea itself and then actually getting to the start line and then proving people wrong was is in itself an amazing feat but when you look at it all as one it is unbelievable uh i just wanted to go back a little bit because you said that you were so for people that don't might not know cape horn is renowned for being horrific it is just a part of the world that sailors fear they have done for hundreds, well, thousands of years, no doubt, but definitely for 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 the last thousand, it's been feared. You said that you you rounded Cape Horn and it was okay, which means I should imagine I can I can I know what's coming. Or I, the way I see it, because I've done stuff like this before, <laughs> you hear about a horrendous place, you get to it, and you're like, ah, what is what is all the hype all about? So you get round it, and you're like, ah, right, we're home plane sailing. I bet you were lulled into a false sense of security, and then you got smashed. And that's I can I can I, I'm sitting here laughing because I know exactly <laughs> the sort of emotion of getting round. You probably got round Cape Horn and thought, we're, we're, uh, yeah. all... <laughs> Cape Horn. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. What Cape Horn went. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. What was what, what happened to the boat then? There. Did you know, did you find out? We did. Yeah, we found out in the end. So we had two problems. We had uh, a split in the tank. Um, so it was actually fresh water that was leaking into the boat, um, which mixed with the salt water, we didn't really realise. But we also had a crack in one of the pipes, which had frozen in the Southern Ocean, and of course was starting to thaw out. Um, and the, the crack went from the cockpit through the boat and out the side. Of course, it was it was venting into the boat. Uh, we fixed everything in, in uh, Uruguay, so it was fine. Right, OK. Um... What so you finished? I mean, there's an amazing response. All those people coming out to see you. Now, what was the? I mean, you've already spoken about. Was it Bob Fisher? What What was the media's take on it all? Was Was there any negative press, or was it Was it a mixed bag? 
It was mostly positive. I mean, we were, we were on the front page of every newspaper. Um, there were some really great articles written about us, actually, the best of British. And um, most journalists, there were a couple that were just couldn't drop it, um, but who cares about them? Most of them were uh, generous and um, magnanimous in, in their, you know, sort of, okay, I, I completely got that wrong. Um, and it was mostly really, really great. Um, interestingly, though, and this is I know, something that you have spoken about before, um, this is probably the first year I've ever talked about the whole mental health issue at the end of something like that. And for, for you know, for most of my life after that, I never spoke about it because you didn't. Um, mm. You know, I'm strong and I'm invincible and I can't talk about, you know, any weakness. Um, and I felt, especially as a woman, actually. So at the end of the race, you're on this, as you know, you're on this massive high. You, you can't get any higher. The buzz. Mm. And this happens. This goes on for two or three days, and and then, and then pretty much the entire fleet disappears. So all of these people that you've spent pretty much two years with, they're gone. Um, I sold the boat. The boat was gone. I had to. Um, the girls are gone off to their next race and their next job. And I hung around to write the book and do the talks and, and really kind of keep the whole maiden thing alive. And it was not a sensible idea. So without any support, without any advice, in those days it didn't exist. Um, yeah. You know, I just kept going. And when I think about it now, I mean, I didn't stop really for five years, literally. And I was not taking care of myself and, you know, working maybe three, doing three talks a day. And... I fell off the cliff and I had a massive breakdown, um, which I say I haven't really spoken about until recently, because I think it's important people like you and sports people are talking about mental health. It's important for people to see people who they think are invincible, that no one is. <laughs> you know, we, and if we don't ask for help and if we don't talk about this stuff, you know, and so I had a nervous breakdown and um, disappeared off down to Wales, divorced, I'd been married a month at that point. At the end of the race when my boyfriend and I got married, um, we went through a horrendous time. I, we got divorced, which was then when the bad press started because they were like, excellent, you know, yeah, let's get stuck into that. And I disappeared off to Wales and I became a recluse for two years. And it's interesting now that the film is out, people saying, why don't I know about this if it was so big? I think it's because I disappeared and the whole thing just, you know, went a bit flat. Um, and literally, yeah. The people yeah. in the sailing world were going, where's she gone? You know, and I just literally disappeared off the face of the earth. It's um, funny you mentioned that. I don't mean to butt in, but I just while it's fresh in my head. It was, um, you know, as a soldier, we always used to talk about coming back from something and decompressing. And we didn't, and I didn't do it, actually. Um, but, but it's the same for all all sort of events that last a bit of time and that are quite mm. highly stressful and 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 are an emotional roller coaster because and i and i'm and i'm putting into that category as well people that go on expeditions adventures and that you do need to have a period of decompression to take stock of your own self and emotions whereas mm. you probably i would suggest for those five years you probably relived that that entire process over and over and over again and never really were able to check it not that that's a bad thing it is what it is it's not mm. not changing mm. yeah. but it but it definitely you know for people that are listening to this when you go and do things and when when 
significant things happen in your life you should really after the event take stock and just check in with yourself and see how you feel about it absolutely and no 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 you're right and and ask for help i mean that is something it's taken me a lot of my adult life to learn how to ask for help that it's not a weakness to ask for help um and the other thing and it's interesting actually all of my experiences with Maiden, and then in my next project, which was the first all-female crew to attempt the non-stop round the world record, I then put together the world's first mixed-gender race team, 125-foot catamaran, and then the dinner event in Qatar, which was a nightmare. But through all of the last 30 years, <laughs> yeah, let's not go there, and really don't go there. Uh, so over the last 30 years, uh, I have learned without realising all these different bits from these projects. And I think, you know, you, you said how are you dealing with with lockdown and for me it's realizing that every single thing in my life has helped me build resilience and i think it's interesting that for, i think for the first time ever i've realized resilience isn't necessarily something you're born with it's something you can learn and develop um learning to ask for help has been, I, I wouldn't have got through lockdown if I hadn't learned how to do that. And also giving, as you just said, giving yourself that space and time to be you. Um, you know, I, I would say things like, um, oh, I don't have time for a holiday. I can't take a weekend off. I can't do this, I can't do that. Now I will, my office is in my house, but I will shut the door at the weekend. I will say, I'm having a weekend off. I'm going to mow the lawn. I'm going to, you know, do this, do that. I'm not going to open my laptop. And it is, you know, we've this modern life that we've lived and, and you were saying earlier, you know, it's in, in quarantine, you're, you're reading, taking time, looking around. This has been that opportunity to do that. I mean, it's been a horrible, you know, sort of way that this has all happened. But how mm -hmm. we use this time, I have found really interesting, you know, talking to friends and colleagues. Um, I think it's life experiences now dictates how we, how we manage these situations. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so I want to move on to the, um, well, basically what's been dominating your life for quite a bit of time now. And I think we met a few years ago, didn't we? And it was, I think. I think it was met, just at the beginning of the project when, when we met. Yeah, I, think it, I think it was. And if, I'm, if I remember rightly, we actually went to the Jordanian, we went to yeah. a travel, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was for the uh, Jordanian ambassador, lovely man. There we go, yeah, who you're good friends with. Um, yeah. That's right, yeah. So, right, can you explain to people what happened to your boat and what, you done, what you're doing with it, what the yes. project is? So I had seller at the end of the race, and we were still there, had no money, we never had any money. Uh, so she, she, she went off. I sold her to a really lovely couple, um, but unfortunately he, he died. She had to sell the bows. And so as I was off doing my things, I was sort of keeping an eye on where she was and she was getting sadder and sadder and older and older and weren't looking after her. And then five years ago, the same week, and this is so weird. So this particular week I was looking for something to do. I'd finished the, the project that I'd just done, which was online safety with kids. And I wanted to go back into some sort of sailing. Um, and that week I met Alex Holmes, who decided to make the documentary. And also that week I had an email from a marina in the Seychelles saying, do you know that your beautiful boat has been sitting here for the past two years rotting? I'm like, what? So this guy had run out of money, left her there and flown home. So they said, we've been trying to maintain her, but 
you know, if, if nothing happens, we're going to take her out and sink her because she's not even worth scrap. I was like, whoa, no woman left behind and 13th crew member and not going to happen. So I called all the original crew and we set up a crowdfunder and we raised the money to buy her <laughs> again and <laughs> rescued her again. Um, so we then, um, we then had to find the money to get her back and yeah, there was a, but it was the beginning, oh, the buzz of the beginning of a new project, you know, ooh, what are we, you know, what are we going to do with this one? Um, so that was exciting. And then again, Jordan came into the frame uh, just after we bought her and I'm thinking, how am I going to afford to ship her back and I can't sell her, she's in too bad a condition. I, I was booked to do a travel talk in um, uh, in the Dead Sea, in, in Jordan, and the woman who'd organised it said, hey, you just rescued Maiden. I went, yeah, she went, let's go and do a press conference in Amman. I'm like, okay. We drove the four hours to Amman, she put on this huge press conference, and didn't think anything more of it, came home, and then got a phone call from this, this, this beautiful voice at the end of the phone said, I hear you've rescued Dad's boat. And I went, Dad's boat? It's like Princess Hire. So it was his daughter who'd heard from Prince Ali that we'd rescued Maiden. She said, what can I do to help? Like, oh, wow. Thank you so much. She is her father's daughter. I mean, she's, yeah. Um, so she said, right, yeah. So she funded the shipping and the complete restoration. And boy, did she need a complete restoration again. This is definitely the last time I rescued this boat. And uh, so she looks... Stunning. I mean, as as she was, but even more beautiful. And yeah, yeah. Uh, she, pretty much as she was, that we've updated the nav station. We really couldn't go with that old stuff. So uh, we then, well, what are we going to do with her? And this was in. So we had her ready um, by summer of 2018, just when the film was coming out. Bizarrely, um, we thought, well, we will do this three-year world tour and we'll raise funds for girls' education. Girls' education has been a passion for me. I know bizarrely since I was didn't use my education, um, but now realise actually how important it is and how I could really use one when I wanted to get a proper job. So I've learned so much over the last uh, few years. 130 million girls around the world currently don't have an education. COVID-19 is going to make that worse because when schools return at the end of this nightmare, the group of girls least likely to return to uh, a group of children least likely to return are disadvantaged girls so that that is set, that's a number that's set to get worse so you know there's all these amazing stuff that i've learned like um if a girl has 12 years of education every girl has 12 years of education we could cut child marriages by 64 percent you know we could cut infant mortality rate we could cut the spread of aids and for every disease in the world you educate a girl you educate her family her community a country you increase the socioeconomic status of everyone around her. So this would this get, went from just educating girls to, oh my God, actually this is changing the world. And you know, we do like to do a project where we're changing the world. So um, Maiden is now sailing around the world on three year world tour while she's not at the moment, obviously. Um, we've got a new younger version of us. Um, they are more qualified, um, they're more amazing, they are, you know, so confident and um, a lot of the women we have on the boat were inspired by Maiden to start sailing and now they're on Maiden so that's uh, amazing playing their part and um, yeah so we, we sail into port we raise funds for community programs which we support we've supported over the last year and a half community programs all over the world which enable girls into education 
in developing countries and keep them in education in developed countries. Um, between the age of 15 and 18, girls tend, to, well, a lot of girls drop out of school. So we maiden sails into port, she inspires. We have a fan club. Uh, we don't, maiden has a fan club. Um, you know, they're much more excited to see her than they are to see me. And um, as I say, we raise funds, we show the film, we go into schools, we have hundreds of uh, kids down on the boat. Um, we, we don't just reach out to girls, we reach out to boys because we're saying to the boys, look, these girls are equal to you. And I have to say with the younger generation, hopefully, I think we're pushing against an open door. It feels like a real change happening, you know, with the, the younger generations. Um, my favorite yeah. conversation on the boat ever was in LA, two little tots in the, in, sitting in the wheel well uh, a little boy and a little girl. <laughs> the little boy turns to the little girl and he goes, is it only girls that can sail around the world then? And then I thought, oh, this is just the best <laughs> sentence ever. And she looked at him and she went, oh, I suppose boys can do it as well. And it's just like, yes. <laughs> so that, 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 conversation would, that conversation would never have happened 30 years ago. <laughs> a million years, no. So it's a great project. We actually, we love doing what we do. I mean, I feel like the luckiest person in the world, you know, mixing all of my favorite things together, empowering women, educating girls, sailing, um, you know, doing all the things we're doing. And, you know, we have a message of hope, which kids write messages to other kids around the world that goes around in a baton, which is a baton relay, um, goes on Maiden. Um, the kids whose messages we get, um, we choose, they all put their hands on the spinnaker. So we have this beautiful spiral of hands from children all over the world. Um, so yeah, we, we've done 33,000 miles. We had visited, um, I think it's over 30 destinations in, uh, I can't remember how many countries, 22, I think it was, uh, when everything came to a halt. And we're now just fundraising to, to keep going until we can begin again, probably in April next year, I think. That's unbelievable. It's awesome. Where can people follow you? Where, the, 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 where can people follow Maiden? Yep, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna show you the website there. So it's um, strategically positioned by my daughter, I have to say. So it's well, www.themaidenfactor.org. So the Maiden Factor. And the reason it's called the Maiden Factor is that when we took her out of the water when we got her back to Hamble, the guy that drives the travel lift that lifts the boats out, he looked sort yeah. of vaguely familiar. And I said, Did you, how long have you worked here? He said, oh, he said, I put Maiden in the water 33 years ago. He said, and I'm now here to take her back out again. I went, oh, that's amazing. He said, uh, he said it's, a, it's a bit dusty in the yard today, isn't it? I went, yeah, it's a lot dusty for a lot of people, actually. And he looked at me and he said, that's the Maiden factor. And I went, oh, I'm so going to steal that for the name of my next project. So that's, yeah, that's who we are, the Maiden factor. That's awesome. I mean, Trace, you've got an amazing story. You are, you've, you've met the Queen. You're a, you're an MBE, deservedly so. Um, but what is it that still? I'm, I'm coming to the. We're coming to the end now. So there are a few canned questions, and then I, I move on to readers' questions. So I ask people if okay. they want to chuck in their own questions at the end. But I mean, it's going to be pretty obvious. But what is it that still motivates you? Uh, you know, I I think at the root of everything I've ever done is um, the word justice, and because I have to, I, I do interviews and conversations where I'm, I'm required to boil everything down to one word and mm. equality didn't quite say it all for me so justice for me I think is something that's always driven me 
I, I cannot abide injustice anywhere for any reason. Uh, humans, animals, um, men, women, colours, religions, I keep saying all those words, but for me, they mean everything. And I think, you know, if justice means equality across the board, um, that is what drives me. And if I leave this earth without having done every single thing that I can do to make sure that my daughter and her daughter do not have to go through what we went through, then I will have failed. So, you know, for me, it's that I, I, I can't I just, there's no easy stop to this because it keeps going. You know, yes, things have changed in 30 years, but we still have casual sexism. You know, I still hear stories about girls who can't get onto boats. I still hear stories of extraordinary women sailors getting on a boat and being told, oh, make the tea, love, will you? You know, so yeah. it, it, this is what drives me. And it's not a, it's not an angry, oh, I must do this kind of thing. It's just an absolute need and a passion. And, um, you know, it, it, if something has to drive me, it seems like as good a thing as any. Yeah, agreed. I am 100% with you on that one. Now, you are an amazingly inspiring person. You, you, your story inspires me you inspire me but who's the most inspirational person you've ever met I've ever met oh my goodness well my mum and King Hussein have had had the most impact on my life as as you know inspirational people go um people who are alive or I have I have so many people inspire me there's an amazing group of young women that are incredibly inspiring at the moment uh who are fighting for our you know saving the planet um so you've got uh, Greta Thunberg you've got Vanessa Bash uh, in yeah. Africa uh, Emma Gonzalez the young lady in in America who's fighting for for gun control uh I think I'm incredibly inspired by young people these days and and I feel ashamed that they have to have these battles that we failed them so badly but um I'm inspired by them yeah yeah that's a great answer basically the person's question that I gets picked out wins a bottle of Talisker. I think it's Daffid D. Gibby. And the question is, as an experienced motivational speaker, you've given many people advice and words of wisdom over the years. What's the best advice you've ever been given? And also, what's the worst advice you've ever been given? <laughs> um, oh best piece of advice I've ever been given was by my mum, uh, who I, I, I steal all of her quotes. Uh, she said to me, just before I left for Greece, she said, remember, there are two facts in life that are uh, incontrovertible. So the first one is, if you stand still, nothing will ever happen. Nothing. It's impossible. If you keep moving forwards, something will happen. So it doesn't matter if you don't know where you're going. It doesn't matter if you don't understand the route or even the destination, but keep moving forwards because if you're not moving forwards, nothing will ever happen. And that it, I've lived my whole life through that and it works. <laughs> That's a good bit of advice. I like it. And worst. Worst piece of advice. Oh my goodness. Um, I, I, I've been given so much bad advice in my life. I can't I don't know where to start. <laughs> um, oh, let's put on around the world race in Qatar. There you are. That's my worst advice ever. Okay, there we go. Uh, Tracy, we've running, we've run out of time basically. So I'd, I'd like to just thank you for everything that you're doing, everything you've done. You're an amazing inspiration. 
Thank you. And I'm really proud. I'm really proud that you could come on my podcast. So uh, thanks. yeah, thanks. Really nice to see you again. Yeah, likewise, yeah. Thanks very much to Tracy, and I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already, and follow me and the Book of Man for the latest news. Thanks again to Talisker for supporting this podcast, and thanks to you all for listening. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.